Law Focus Podcast, bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus. Welcome to Law Focus. My name is Veronica Mahwadi, your voice of law for the evening, right here on Vow FM 88.1. Like every Tuesday evening, right here on Vow FM from 7 p.m. till 8 p.m., we will unpack everything law related. South Africa's Bill of Rights speaks highly of equality as an entrenched fundamental right. Hence, we have our equality clause in Section 9 of the Constitution. Other laws that speak to equality include the promotion of equality and prevention prevention of unfair discrimination as well as the provision of labor relations and the Employment Equity Act. The reality of the life of an HIV positive person is that access to progressive treatment, fairness in the workplace and the right to privacy are still issues of daily struggle and discrimination for them. Tonight's show will look into issues of human rights in relation to HIV criminalization and disclosure and of course to help us to navigate this discussion, we will be in conversation with HIV AIDS expert Dr. Cindy Fanzil, as well as attorney of healthcare and life science law, Neil Kirby. Of course, this wouldn't be a conversation without your input. If you do wish to join the show, you can send us a tweet at VowFM using the hashtag LawFocus. You can also send us a voice note on our WhatsApp line using the number 084-078-4912. Please do stay tuned for the upcoming discussion. But before we get into that, we start the show with the legal hotspots of the week. Here are your legal hotspots. Rounding up all, all the top all stories, the of, the stories of the week is Legal Hotspots. I'm joined in studio by one of our law-focused researchers, Sia Bongamota, who will be giving us our legal hotspots for the evening. What do you have for us, Sia? Well, we'll start with Castasomania, um, where she went to the Court of Arbitration for Sport on Monday to challenge proposed rules uh, that could force her to lower her hormone levels. So the International Association of Athletes Federation says it is introducing the rules to create a level um, of playing of playing field um, for other female athletes. Mm. So this comes after um, she's like they basically saying she should um, reduce her, her hormone level so that she can if she still wants to compete because they feel like she's, I mean, stronger than other women, if I may put it like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So. Um, the measures would force uh, so-called hypertrogenic athletes or those with different um, differences of sexual development to take drugs to lower their hormone levels below a prescribed amount if they wish. Uh, uh, that is a... absurd. I know you can see me from across the table shaking my head. <laughs> that is just craziness. Yeah. So, I mean, um, the South African government says the rules specifically target uh, Semenya mm. and they are violating her human rights. Absolutely. And I mean, it's also just speaking to a bigger you know, problem. Yeah. Are we now speaking about the standard of in which women can compete in certain spaces? What are we now saying that women must be a certain way to be considered a woman? I mean, it's 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 very tricky and it's honestly quite you know disrespectful. You, you know, for me, um, would go um, if we were to make an example with a man who had like low low um, hormone levels, like Correct. if it's a low. So for him to compete with other men, he should obviously... Now be, you know, pumped uh, with estrogen pumped or something for or him to testosterone, yeah. So that's the biggest question that I have. I mean, I'm why... Thinking about it now, that... What was wrong with Usain Bolt? Why Why didn't they put him on drugs? Yeah, why didn't they say, no, no, he's too strong for the other men? So yeah, he's has, too fast, you know, all yeah. that Jamaican blood. Slow it down. No. So no. It, it raises a question um, against women in sports. No, absolutely. It raises a big question that... 
are women being targeted because of their ability um, to uh, compete ability to compete of course ability to be the best to be champions yeah so I, i'm with uh, like we have to look into this like no, and definitely. check and i think yeah. as a country we are definitely all behind and we are all supporting her yeah so the rules were to be introduced last year in november but they have put on, been put on hold depend um because this is um it's been like going on for some time so um the past weekend there were hearings so a judgment is expected by the end of march this year so moving to our second story talking about um the R&B artist whose legal name is Robert Sylvester Kelly um who was charged on Friday with 10 counts of criminal sexual abuse. So this is um obvious we know Mr. Step in the name of love that guy now he's facing charges that you know have been happening that took place years ago. And so it's about time and you know my only worry about this situation with him facing charges is that he's been in the situation before where he's faced charges and he was arrested he, i mean but he's still here he's still making music and it's confusing in a way because now some people saying ah why are they coming out now why but it happened we have to face it and if it and, and it could still be happening so yeah. let's let's just hear more about the story so he, he turned himself on um in on on the same day um although he de- denies the charges and um, all the allegations against him. So he's not saying, yes, I did it. He's like, no, I'm going to challenge this because now he's denying it. Which is nothing new, once again. <laughs> of course. So according to the Cork County State Attorney Kimberly Fox, three of the four victims were between the ages of 13 and 17 at the time of um, the alleged abuse, which is said to be back in 1998. Mm. So that is like 20, 21 years ago. Mm. And he is scheduled for a March 8 arraignment where he'll have an opportunity to enter into a plea. So it's kind of, it's a building, we're building up to that as in like few days from now, it's mm. going to be, it's going to be taking place. So moving to our last story, um, suing because of masturbation. That's the last story. So um, a set of 54 year old, um, the conjoined twins from Michigan are facing each other in a legal battle as one of the siblings is contesting his brother's right to engage in a sexual in sexual act without his permission as i as i can see your face now you're like okay <laughs> i am trying to obviously put this in 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 perspective yes. yeah so i mean alfred and and Wilbert peterson were born joined and the way um at the waist basically and facing each other so just think about it when we talk about sex and with um, 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 a set of twins who were born um, in their like in their condition, so Great. now they're contesting. They're having a battle of um, uh, the one is like um, contesting a sexual act. Like he wants to be ha- able to, to have sex without right. his brother's permission. Right, right, because they are now obviously sharing one organ. Yeah, yeah. So very tricky. Very, 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 very tricky. Um, so they've they they um, this shit. Uh, this shared penis has caused many fights between the twins over recent years, and Alfred is now going to court to stop his brother from masturbating. <laughs> I mean, I have to pass this because, I mean, personally, I can't relate. Yeah. So I have to ask you as a gentleman, if you had a twin brother stuck to your hip, you know, and he found that, you know what, I want to masturbate, but you don't, would you take him to court? How would you guys settle this? Yeah, I think I think to engage in any sexual because uh, um, it does require your consent. I mean, you guys are sharing the same organ. No, no. In their condition, I think they should try to work something out. You know, 
they should try to work something out because now um, they are stuck to each other together forever. <laughs> I mean, so obviously, if they were, if one of them wants sexual pleasure, they should like tolerate each other. If I may put it like that, they should mm. find a way of working this out. Mm. If I may put it like that, so going to court, yeah, might not be the best. It might not because the court might judge something, might come up with a different with a verdict. But yes. one of them were like, uh-uh, I can't follow this. This person, yeah. we, are, we are together. We can't, I can't. So and, they if, have, and isn't it if I'm suing you, I'm also technically suing myself in a way. In a way, if one of them were to be convicted, <laughs> Correct. both of them would go to jail. <laughs> very, very tricky, but yeah. it is very interesting when but, it comes but the, to law. This is an unusual case, you know, because it is said to clarify many legal issues are mm. concerning the sexuality of conjoined twins. And it's something that we don't talk about. And it's something we don't talk about. Yeah, and we don't talk about it. I think this is the amazing thing about law, is that it really opens our eyes to various things that we just really try not to think about, but it kind of forces us and says, what do we do in these situations? Yeah, yeah. And I think um, it's time for us to just open up the law. Um, like the law community basically should open up cases that affect things that we don't even talk about. Correct. So no, this definitely. is basically um, something that's, I wouldn't say hidden, but something that's not um, common to our everyday life. Yeah, and in, in our mainstream media. So, so, But of mm. course, this is why we do have legal hotspots. And yes. this is the kind of stories that Sia brings for us to sort of engage in. Uh, thank you so much, Sia. Uh, much appreciated. You are still tuned into Law Focus on VARFM 88.1. Let's continue with the show as we discuss HIV AIDS and the law. Rounding up all, all the top all stories, the of, the stories of the week is Legal Hotspots. We asked for your opinion this week on whether or not someone should be criminalized for transmitting or exposing another person to HIV intentionally or unintentionally. And this is what you had to say. No, fitness and wellness, for instance, is your own health and responsibility. So if you go get um, uh, HIV from wherever you get it from, it's your responsibility as well. So no one should be criminalized for doing so. It's, uh, if, for instance, if I have to have sex with a girl, I need to know my status. I need to know her status. If I decide on not knowing her status, I decide to go flesh on flesh with her and get and contract an HIV, who's to blame? Myself. No one should be criminalized on that. It depends whether it's intentionally or unintentionally. If it's intentionally, yes, because you're stealing someone's life. If it's unintentionally, there are ways to go about preventing it. So with the, the disease or the virus itself takes three working days or, th- or three days in itself to cultivate in your bloodstream. So if you take ARVs for a month, you, you can avoid it completely. They should be criminalized, especially if they know. Because when you know, it's like you are spreading it on people's minds. You go to, okay, and I give it to the next one and the next one. Even Nama STD, Nama STI. When you know, there should be some sort of law, maybe. If you knew your status before you, you engaged and you didn't use protection then. Because, I mean, for instance, HIV, it's a lifetime virus. They still haven't found a cure. So if mine was infected virus and then you come back with I didn't know or even if you knew it it's a thing you would what's or not. It's really both of us like we're really responsible if I'm giving you if I'm if I'm being intimate with you like willingly, you're not forcing to sleep with me and without a condom on top of it and you're HIV positive but then you didn't lose disclose your status with me then it's my responsibility too if I'm infected. It means I gave you my body willingly, you didn't force me anything. It's not a criminal offense. But then if you forced to sleep with me then that's something else. 
don't think anyone should be criminalized because either it's intentional or unintentional you knew what you were getting yourself into when you had unprotected sex so the chances are when you have unprotected sex even if you don't know if a person has the disease you may get or may not so you just risked your life your own life no one should be criminalized I don't see I don't think what uh, they should be criminalized because both parties would have agreed to to be involved in a sexual intercourse so I don't think what we should blame one person I think yes because especially if it wasn't communicated um, if talks were had before the intercourse happened that I'm positive and the person receiving the virus consented if anyone would then it should be criminalized like was Southern Africa has the highest HIV prevalence, with Swaziland ranked in at first place, followed by Botswana, Lesotho, South Africa, Namibia, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Mozambique, and then Malawi. South Africa currently has a population of 57 million people. Of these, approximately 7 million are HIV positive. That is 13.1% of the population. In fact, statistics also show that 18.8% of HIV positive persons are aged between 15 to 49, which of course is the reproductive age. The first South African National HIV Prevalence Incidence Behaviour and Communication Survey revealed that 26.3% of HIV-positive persons are female, whereas 14.8% are males. Further, 16.6% are black, followed by colored, white, and Asian Indians. Of course, as we try to understand the state of HIV in South Africa, our researcher, Millicent Indueni, spoke to an HIV-AIDS expert, Dr. Cindy Fanzil. We are now joined on the line by HIV-AIDS expert, Dr. Cindy Fanzil. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Cindy. Welcome to Law Focus. Thank you so much. Now, Southern Africa has the highest number of HIV prevalence in the world. Swaziland yes. is literally sitting as almost 30% of its entire population. Um, we, together with our neighboring countries, are trailing closely behind. What is it about Southern Africa, Southern Africans, or is it just our geography? What is it about us that we have to have such a high HIV prevalence? So... Um, you know, whenever I'm asked this question, the one thing that people don't realize is that um, the breaking up of the family units contributed a great deal to um, to just you know people living apart from their partners and so on. And apartheid um, is a very good example of that. And if you look at the at migrant labor, how you'll have you know one partner in another province and another partner working elsewhere. And then you end up having people with multiple families. So that, 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 that culture, which is imposed on us, has contributed greatly to the spread of, um, of HIV in our region. That's um, I think over the years, the infection rate is coming down slightly, but we still do carry the, the highest burden, as you say, in the world. Well, that's an interesting, um, you know, answer that, that, that I, I wasn't aware that, you know, some of the contributions no, 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 are because no, of this no, and, and the reason I say this is because if you look at the colored community, right, the colored community has a very high rate of teenage pregnancies, but a very, very low rate of HIV, right? And so when you dig deeper and you look at, the, you look at, the, at all the different racial groups, you find that the other racial groups did not, the families were not split apart, Right? So the white people, the Indian people, and the colored people tend to be family units, 
And the black people tend to be scattered, more scattered. And if you put a man in Pumalanga to gain mine coal and his wife is in KZN, you know, you, you are basically asking, you're, you're, you're creating a recipe for trouble. There's no two ways about it. That's very informative. I, yeah, yeah. That's very informative. Now, who should go for HIV testing? Look, I, I feel that as soon as you become sexually active, you should go for an HIV test at least once a year. And I say, and I say this because many times I see couples where one, one couple is negative and one couple is positive, and they're now trying to figure out from me when the infection may have happened. But if you've never tested for HIV before, and the first time I see you is in this scenario where one is negative and one is positive, I have no way of knowing when and how anything may have happened. So it should become a habit for all of us who are sexually active to test for HIV. And even if you've been sexually active in the past, you should have a baseline HIV test. Even more important is that before you embark on a sexual relationship with someone, while you're still in the dating phase, because you know sometimes you, you, you can tell when a relationship is going somewhere. I mean, if a guy asks you out for coffee the first time, the second time, the third time, then you know that you're not brother and sister. He's going somewhere, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's the conversation around sex should really start should start then. And you can see, you can you can feel when someone is vibing with you. Yeah. Just simple questions like, have you ever had an HIV test? Simple questions like, um, what do you think of condoms? I mean, you don't want to find out that someone doesn't like condoms when you're already naked and in bed. That's, sure. a, that's the worst that's place dangerous. to find out. Exactly. And, and what many about... people get caught out in that situation. Yeah. What about people then who are not sexually active? Is it something that is important to do? For instance, maybe for the t- statistics, um, is it something that actually matters if I've never had sex in my life to actually still just go for the HIV testing? Well, I think so. I, I think if, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you're of age... <clears throat> excuse me, and, and, you, uh, and you've never had sex in your life, you just want to have a baseline HIV test. Just do a test and then you can keep it somewhere. So you know that, okay, I'm negative, and then at least you know your status. Yeah. And, and you can carry on with your life. But I, I think South Africa is a very interesting country in that even though we have the highest rate of, 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 of HIV, we don't speak about sex openly, right? We all know that um, HIV is there. We all know what needs to be done. But we don't talk about sex. And how can you talk about HIV all the time and not speak about sex? So, yeah, we, we're a strange country. We, we really are. Now, is it possible to really know who it is that might have infected you with HIV? So the only way you can know is if you've been testing regularly. So say, for example, you test every six months of our sale. You test every January, and then you test again every June, every January, every June. When you do test positive, you, and you know exactly who you've been having sexual relationships with, you can then trace back and say, oh, okay, I was negative more June, more January, I was positive, and the only person I've had unprotected sex with is Cindy. Mm-hmm. Then you can say it to Cindy. But in the, in the absence of regular HIV tests and a recent HIV negative test, it's very it's, it's impossible to tell. You can guess, but guessing you know, doesn't work. Well, I, I hope we are going to actually apply some of these things that you're really telling us because it's important. And, you know, in the, in the, in the event of certified mentally ill patients, yes. they, there's issues of consent to HIV testing as well. Yes. Um, how, yes. how does it work for them? Okay, so the only time <clears throat> that you, could, you can get an HIV test done on someone is if the court has ordered it. Okay, so being mentally um, ill is not a, is not a justification for a for a forced HIV test. 
Mm. I think the only time that I've seen an HIV test being forced on someone is if there's been a sexual assault and the, and the, um, the, 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 the person that has done the sexual assault, we need to know the status. In, those, in that situation, the court will order that an HIV test be, be done so that we can, you know, we, we, can, we can take the necessary action. Is that but regarded as an emergency? Yes, definitely. I mean, look, in any case, we're going to put the, the sexual assault victim on post-exposure prophylaxis and all the necessary medication. But in my, in, my history, in, my, in my time as a medical student and as a doctor, the only time I saw a test being forced on someone was, was during a sexual assault case where, where the, the, person that sexually assault, the person that did the sexual assault was, was forced to do a test. Okay. Yeah. Now, since ARVs were introduced, I'm not, a, I'm not a medical doctor, so some of yeah. my terms are going to fail me. South Africa has no been problem. using <laughs> um, Ifavirin. Ifavirin. There we go. Ifavirin. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no. And more recently, the Dolutz, how do we pronounce that one? Dolutegrava. Dolutegrava has yes. been said to be introduced. What yes. is the difference between these two ARVs? Okay, so whenever we treat HIV, we treat HIV with three or more drugs. Okay, so there's always, there's always, there's always three or more drugs. And Ifavirenz and Dolutegravir are, are the, the, the third drug which we'd introduce to treat HIV. So the problem with Ifavirenz is that it's a very good drug. It works really well, but it causes some side effects like dizziness. It causes headaches. In some people, it causes nausea. And in some people, it causes nightmares. So for the most part, most people only have those um, um, side effects for like two weeks and then they're fine. But there's some people where the side effects persist and they don't get better. And so what we realized that, okay, if, if a, so then a newer drug came along. There's, there's a lot of newer drugs and Dolotegravir happens to be the one that's on everyone's lips because, you know, it's a new drug, it's a new pitama block. But so when, when, when Dolotegravir came along, we felt that, okay, for a country... Dolutegravir can work well as a replacement for efavirenz because almost everyone at the moment is on two drugs plus efavirenz, okay? So then unfortunately what happened is that in Botswana, where they introduced um, the, the, the drug, um, what happened is that four babies were born with some defects. And so the Department of Health of South Africa was like, okay, wait a minute, we are not going to take that risk and introduce that, that, that drug to everyone in South Africa until we are sure that it's safe. So what we're doing at the moment is that we're waiting until March. We're waiting to see if any other babies in Botswana are born with the, with the defect, the spinal cord defect. If a single baby, a single other baby is born with that defect, then South Africa won't be introducing that drug. Oh, okay. We're hands because I love the new drug. I love it. It's beautiful. It's, it's like a Bentley of ARVs. So we're just waiting and praying to God. We're open to the Hambagate. And if everything goes well, from, from April onwards, we'll be doing a phase-in approach where we're slowly changing people from efavirenz to dolutegravir. Okay, that makes sense. Now, as an HIV-AIDS yes. expert, what is your take yes. on the debates concerning disclosure as well as the criminalization of HIV transmission? Okay, so, so I love these questions. So the first thing around disclosure, so I'm very clear about disclosure, that you only need to tell a person who you are, whom you are exchanging bodily fluids with about your HIV status. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. So I don't think there's any need for you to tell your children or to tell your parents about your HIV status only because HIV is no longer the death sentence that it was, right? Because we come from a time where there was no medication. If you tested positive for HIV, you knew that you were going to die. But we now live in an era where the medication is so advanced, everything is so advanced that you can live a long, 
healthy, happy life with HIV. So there's no need to be alarmist and to tell members of your family or friends or make some huge announcement about your status, unless you really want to, okay? But if you're sleeping with someone, it's important for them to know that you're living with HIV. Not because you're scared to infect them, because if you're on treatment, you won't infect them, but only because, you know, it's something important for them to know. Around the criminalization of HIV, again, um, that's something that I'm completely opposed to, especially from a human rights perspective. I think we're at an age where if you, you know when someone is, is, is interested in you in that way, so as adults, we should be having talks about sex way before the sex happens. And part of the talks will include, hey, have you, have you tested for HIV? Do you mind if we go and test together? And then you find out, you know, then you can, you can figure out who's who. So I'm totally opposed to the criminalization of HIV. I think countries that do that um, are, are really violating people's human rights. Wow. And for the last question that I have for you this afternoon, I understand that HIV is no respecter of persons. It does not care yes. what your race, nationality, ethnicity, religious belief, level of education, socioeconomic status, whether you are a beggar in the streets or the top earning celebrity of 2018, it does not care. But... When I look at the statistics and try to study, analyze, and understand, I am baffled by the numbers. And hence, I would like to pose to you that although HIV affects us all, right now in 2018 in the Republic of South Africa, I submit that in terms of prevalence, it is mostly affecting the young black woman. Would I be correct in making that claim? So you're correct in that it, is, it's, it does primarily affect women. And just purely based on the demographics of our country, it primarily affects black, black women. One thing that you guys don't know is that um, there's a large population of other races who are living with HIV. We just don't have access to those statistics because those people are primarily seen in the private sector. right? So the Department of Health cannot ask Discovery to release their stats and tell us how many white people are living with HIV and are HIV positive. If that, was a, if they could, if that could happen, that would give them a better picture, a more balanced view of HIV in this country. Right? And I think the media, the, the media only has public sector stats to go by. So white people are forgiven for thinking that HIV. it's far from the truth. Mm. As long as you're sexually active, you are at risk of HIV infection. I happen to be, I happen to work in a predominantly white uh, HIV practice on some days. So obviously most of the patients that I see with HIV are white. But again, it's that sabo, I think are available to the media and so on. And why is that? Oh, well, look, private sector patients, I mean, their stats, you know, are, are their stats, and, you know, the, the, the medical aids are not forced to supply um, their stats to the Department of Health. I wish they were, because then it would give a much more balanced picture of of, of everything in our country. Absolutely. Dr. Cindy has uncovered and brought forth such vital information, such as how the breakup of the family structure in Southern Africa has played a major role in the prevalence of HIV, but also the importance of going for regular testing, even as someone who is not sexually active, know your status. Listening to Law Focus? Connect with VowFam88.1 on Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer. Law Focus, handing you your rights. 
A man in the United States has been handed two 15-year imprisonment sentences following his non-disclosure of his HIV-positive status when he had sex twice with his partner. Of course, on both occasions, he did use a condom and did not infect him. This is where the debate around criminalization stems. The accused argues that although he did not disclose his status, he is and was working with his doctors at the time to ensure that he protects his partner at all times. It has been argued that the issue of criminalization is about a misunderstanding of how HIV is transmitted. Important information to take note of is that it cannot be transmitted from saliva when kissing, biting or spitting. It is also undetectable. It is rare that it will be transmitted in a single sexual act. Most importantly is that it's not possible to establish proof beyond reasonable doubt that one person has infected another, even with the most advanced phylogenetic scientific tools. And this is essentially where the whole dilemma about criminalizing comes from. The issue of criminalization of HIV transmission in South Africa goes as far back and even prior to 2001 when the South African Law Commission reported on its potential criminalization. The criminalization of HIV transmission is a rather seemingly punitive measure or approach to preventing the spread of HIV. 72 countries have HIV-specific criminal laws. Some of these countries include Canada, the United States of America, Australia, Zimbabwe and Namibia. South Africa, however, does not have any specific law on HIV transmission. Although, of course, the South African Council of Churches suggested in 2006 that if you are sexually active and do not disclose your status to your partner, you could potentially be liable for rape. This would also apply even to sexual partners who are already HIV positive. Although we do not have any specific law on HIV transmission, we do have laws that ultimately protect each citizen of this country. And at the core of these laws are human rights. Let us remind each other of these laws that protect HIV positive persons. Although we may not exhaust all of them, it is important that we do notice particularly the ones around the issues of disclosure and the right to privacy. Persons with HIV or AIDS have the duty to respect the rights, health and physical integrity of others and to take appropriate steps to ensure this when necessary. Insurance companies may not unfairly refuse to provide an insurance policy to any person solely on the basis of HIV and AIDS status. HIV positive people have a right to their confidentiality and to keep their status private. No HIV... No HIV-positive person may not be restricted in terms of the movement or have their rights to make their own decisions, such as about marriage and children taken away from them. Well, prisoners with HIV-AIDS should have access to the kind of special care that is equivalent to that enjoyed by other prisoners with other serious illnesses. No health professional may disclose the status of an HIV patient to his or her partner, even when the partner is not sexually protected. That is, no condoms are used. It is unlawful and illegal to disclose someone's HIV status without their consent because it is also unlawful to threaten to disclose or blackmail a person to either disclose or keep their status. I have the right to choose when and if I want to be tested. Listening to Law Focus? Connect with VowFam88.1 on Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer. In 2013, the Pretoria High Court ruled HIV exposure as an attempted murder. The defendant in this case had 
unprotected sex with his unsuspecting girlfriend knowing his status but of course not disclosing. He was given six years in prison. It is important to note that the man in the case who had unprotected sex with someone without first disclosing his status was an HIV AIDS counsellor himself. It would be very interesting to find out perhaps if it was someone who had not been an HIV AIDS counsellor with the outcome of the matter be different. Joining us to speak to Millicent and Duwani about some of these matters of discrimination and disclosure is the Director of Healthcare and Life Science Law at Worksman's Attorneys, Mr. Neil Kirby. Thank you, Mr. Kirby, for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, let's start with our first question, being that in 2013 we had a case of uh, Mr. Piri, who was an AIDS counsellor. He was found guilty of having unprotected sex with his unsuspecting partner without disclosing his status and subsequently sentenced to six years imprisonment. Now, had he not known, or rather, had he not been an HIV-AIDS counsellor, could we have expected a different outcome of the case? Well, I don't think so, because... I think knowing the status is definitely um, uh, universal um, knowledge from the point of view of what it is that you can or can't do with an unsuspecting partner or or somebody that um, you have decided to have uh, uh, intercourse with. Obviously, as a a counsellor, you are even more aware. So I can understand that the, the, the particular sentence was maybe a bit harsher. But with the amount of well, the amount of information in circulation these days about HIV and AIDS, it's very difficult for one to feign ignorance in the face of that information. Uh, and I don't think that at this point in time there may be uh, a different outcome for, for, that, for that type of scenario. That's, that's okay. That clears it up. Now, if you do know who may have infected you with the HIV virus, what recourse does one actually have? Well, you probably have two sets of recourse. One would be in criminal law. You could lay a complaint with the South African Police Services. The other may be in um, delict or our law dealing with damages, where if somebody has inflicted harm on you and you suffer a loss as a result or you incur costs that you otherwise wouldn't have incurred but for that harm, you may very well have a legal remedy to sue that person for, for money. Have we had actually um, successful claims in that regard? Not to my knowledge. Um, to I knowledge. think that the focus has been on criminal outcomes rather than on uh, civil remedy outcomes. Okay. Now, as an expert in the field of healthcare and law, is it possible to truly verify who may have infected you with the HIV virus? Very difficult to, to, to prove, especially if you have multiple partners. You would have to almost require each of those partners to provide you with blood results um, as at the time that you may have been involved with that person from a physical point, point of view. And if they refuse to do so, there's very little that you could actually do um, about forcing them to provide you with those results. It's obviously very sensitive medical information, um, and uh, people are not necessarily compelled to provide um, other people in the absence of legal action with uh, medical um, medical information. Yeah, it does sound like a very difficult case to handle, I have to be honest. Now, as we're talking about disclosure, there is this lived reality of HIV-positive people at times being blackmailed by those who are close to them. So, for instance, your spouse blackmails you by threatening to reveal your HIV status if you perhaps are no longer interested in the relationship or even vice versa, if you reveal, you will, uh, you know, you may lose certain benefits in the relationship or whatever. Now... 
how far do these issues of your confidentiality and disclosure extend? Well, confidentiality is a pretty absolute concept in medical or healthcare law. I mean, your medical records are required to be kept confidential by your healthcare practitioner, uh, and there are only very certain circumstances where that information may be sent from your healthcare practitioner to perhaps another healthcare practitioner. So confidentiality remains um, a top priority from a South African legal perspective. In terms of disclosure, you aren't required to disclose to anyone other than perhaps your partner um, concerning your medical condition, and that wouldn't necessarily only relate to HIV. If there was a, uh, any STD, would require some degree of disclosure in terms of both responsibility and just common decency uh, to to your partner. Um, but once again, you know, you can't compel someone to disclose all of the information at the outset if they don't want to. And you certainly can't require them to sign a form or a consent or whatever the case is, especially if you if you're in a relationship. So it, it makes it makes life relatively difficult to to, to manage. Um, and also, you have to be in a position where, uh, preferably, you use the necessary protections when having sex. And if you can have a discussion with your partner prior to any sexual intercourse, that should really happen on the basis of hopefully some honesty and some decency. Okay. Now, I mean, I agree with you that confidentiality really is a big issue. And sometimes, maybe I'm wrong, but sometimes medical staff might disclose your consent. Um, I mean, your status without your consent. These are all illegal acts, of course. We've already spoken about even threatening to disclose is mm. it's wrong because, you know, it's blackmailing. Now, what recourse do people have if they do find themselves in those kind of situations um, that I've just outlined? Where do they go to for help? And what are the time frames in terms of the law for dealing with these kinds of lawsuits? Well, look, if we're talking about a crime, which is really what blackmail or extortion would amount to, then your remedy would lie with, with criminal law and the police services. And if you're in the position where you are you being extorted or you're being blackmailed, so to speak, because of your HIV status by someone near and dear to you, I mean, it's a rather unfortunate set of circumstances, but it is one that I think the law um, would, uh, would be able to remedy. It wouldn't be easy. It would be incredibly awkward. But it, it would be something that, the, the, that criminal law would recognize as having direct legal consequences. And now, so, okay... If one wanted to then take matters further, it would it, really, it would be with the police services. Mm-hmm. Albeit, then I understand that the, the, the person sitting with um, with uh, the, a particular medical condition may then be faced with having to disclose their condition to a policeman or policewoman. But um, you know, I, I think that in the circumstances, in circumstances where you are the victim of a crime, I, I think you should be able to exercise your rights on that basis. Well, these are very complex issues. How do we then also now deal with people who do not have capacity, um, people who are perhaps underage um, or persons with mental illness and discussing issues of consent for HIV testing, testing issues of non-disclosure, the potential criminalization for HIV transmission? Where do these people who might not have capacity fit in within this debate and uh, discussion? Well, Let's start with children. Um, children can give consent to a medical procedure if they are capable of understanding the consequences and are able to consent themselves. So a child, irrespective of their age, within reason, 
would be able to say yes or no to a medical process or a medical procedure. Where that child is unable to do so due to age or due to another particular circumstance, that child's guardian or parent would be able to do that on their behalf. When it comes to um, people who are mentally challenged, the legislation recognises how consent is to be provided, um, both in terms of the Mental Health Care Act as well as the National Health Act. So one would follow legal processes in order to secure that consent. And in the final um, question, we know that there are significant strides that have been made by the international community concerning HIV research. What are your last encouraging words that you would like to say about some of these progresses? I think we've come a long way as a society ourselves, both um, in terms of our recognition of the problem um, that we have with how HIV and AIDS was originally dealt with in this country, to a point now where we as a society are grappling with that issue and we're trying to deal with it as best we can and within the limited resources that we have. But I I think that South Africans are aware, South Africans are proactive, and I think that from an international perspective, whilst we may have been lagging uh, quite badly at some point, I think we are shoulder to shoulder with our international peers. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Mr. Neil Kirby, who is the Director of Healthcare and Life Sciences Law at Worksman's Attorneys. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you very much. I think the information that Neil has just given us really outlined that be safe because proving that you are infected by a particular person will be painstakingly difficult. If that person refuses to reveal the medical information, which is their right because it is confidential, you may find yourself in a bit of a fix. I think what we can gather from Neil's conversation with Millicent is that you have to be safe because proving that you were infected by a particular person can be quite challenging if the accused refuses, of course, to reveal his medical information, which is their right as it is confidential. It does become very, very tricky after that. Bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus. As we highlighted some of the notions concerning criminalization, it seems the call to criminalize HIV stems from its belief that it will decrease the spread of HIV. However, the reality is HIV will not decrease because of a law. It will decrease because of other multiple reasons, including our own internalized individual behavior towards sex and sexuality, as well as the proper availability and distribution of condoms. And of course, this also includes the distribution of female condoms and of course, taking responsibility of our own health. And that includes knowing your status. As we contemplate tonight's show, we need to consider some of the major human rights related to HIV programs, which as a society, we need to continue to foster and that includes stigma and discrimination reduction. We also need to monitor and reform laws, regulations and policies relating to HIV. We need to consider human rights training for healthcare workers and reduce gender-related discrimination. If you need any further information or any sort of help regarding HIV AIDS, feel free to contact the National HIV AIDS Helpline on 011-715- Two triple zero, or visit their website for more details on www.aidshelpline.org.za. From our producer Simba Honde, our technical producer Kutlane Sarame, as well as our law focus researchers Sesete Zingelwa, Millicent Ndwene, Siabonga Mota, and myself, Veronica Mahwadi. Thank you so much for tuning into Law Focus tonight. Law Focus, handing you your rights. Law Focus Podcast.